Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the No Limits podcast. My guest today is an engineer, a shot shell ballistics expert, and co-owner of Apex Ammunition. He is a turkey hunter, a duck hunter, a goose hunter, and an officer in the United States Air Force. Uh, today we unravel the confusing conversations that surround non-toxic shot. We talk about the properties of non-toxic shot, the options that you have, the ballistics and performance of those options, everything from pattern consistency, energy delivered and transferred to the target, shot speed versus energy, as well as some of the marketing tricks that ammo manufacturers use to make ordinary shot shells appear extraordinary to the hardworking American consumer. If you think that because your shot is faster as marketed, if you think that because your shot is faster, it's better, you need to listen up. We cover a lot of that on today's podcast. There are so many factors that come into play. It's amazing. Uh, we also cover the science behind the 1991 law, which covered uh, or which outlawed the use of lead shot as well as the impacts upon waterfowl. Um, that we've seen since that ban. Um, so you guys that are conspiracy theorists that say there's absolutely no scientific reason behind the U.S. Fish and Wildlife's decision to ban lead, uh, pay attention uh, because there's actually a lot of science behind it. Uh, I learned a lot, and I think you will also. So please welcome to the show co-owner of Apex Ammunition and Shot Shell Ballistics expert, Mr. Nick Charney. get finished loading yeah yeah i just got done probably 10 minutes ago i'm still packing up for florida to leave tomorrow or opening opening of the south zone is open on saturday so i'm flying down tomorrow for the weekend yeah that's a that's a this a crazy time in between seasons yeah i uh i haven't even finished packing yet i got crap scattered i actually just put my guns in my truck actually so at least i got the my guns packed now i gotta pack my actual suitcase so for those of you joining the podcast, I've got Nick Charney on with uh, Apex Ammunition. Thanks for dropping by, brother. Glad you could share some, share some, spend some time with us. Yeah, absolutely, man. I uh, appreciate spending time with you. We've uh, we started shooting Apex this year, and I've already I've turned everybody, <laughs> like everybody that I can turn on to it. I've turned on to it. Um, we I've just I've loved your waterfowl loads you better start making a bunch more because <laughs> man you know we're trying it's uh it's been picking up pretty steadily here um you know each and every month that we've been going by and we're gonna try to you know make some more than we did last year man it's kind of funny the the dynamics of building a, a business from the ground up with you know guys that are just average everyday americans you know you you don't have endless pockets and endless investors and endless you know resources to you know get everything you need when you need it. So it definitely, uh, I guess they have a term for that called growing pains, which we're still experiencing on the daily basis. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Now you're one of the, the co-owners. How did you guys, uh, now just quick background. You're in, uh, you live in South Carolina. The shop is in, your base of operations is in Mississippi, Columbus, Mississippi, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're a veteran-owned company. Um, some of us are still actively serving, like myself. Um, one of my current partners is uh, still deployed right now to um, the Middle East, and then um, I myself am still active duty. Um, 
So we started in Mississippi. I was there for the better part of a decade. And then I just, within the last year, got recently assigned to a new base in uh, South Carolina. So our our production facility is still in Mississippi. Uh, we have no plans or means to move it um, at this time. And we have a great team. And uh, I'm just out here in South Carolina. And I commute back and forth when I can to kind of check in on it. What uh, what branches of the what branch are you in? I'm in the Air Force, um, and then one of my partners, Jared, he's in the Army, uh, the Mississippi National Guard. Well, and I'm ex Navy, so from from a sailor to an airman, thank you for serving, my friend. Thank you. It uh, it definitely um, it's kind of good to you know have appreciation from fellow people who've walked the line as well. Roger that. Now to start, you are. I gathered from our conversations more of a turkey hunter, correct? Yeah, I, you know, I hunt everything. Um, you know, I, I like deer hunting as much as the next guy. Uh, I really do. I try to plan a good week long trip to the Midwest every year, or every other year for whitetails the second week in November uh, with my bow. I, I waterfowl hunt as, as much as I can get out there. Uh, it's definitely no Mississippi being here in South Carolina, but. Uh, through and through, I'd argue that my kryptonite is, is definitely spring turkey season. I uh, I usually hit about, depending uh, depending how lenient my wife is during the year and uh, how much she su- supports me, I, I, I'd like to believe that I usually hit anywhere between four and eight states a year. Uh, and then depending on, obviously, my work schedule as well, if they're not going TDY overseas or something or doing some training. So um i usually save all my vacation and i tell my friends if you're getting married during the spring uh you just tell me where to send the registry because that's about all you're getting out of me (laughs) now apex is a relatively new ammunition company um i just i really started seeing you guys a lot uh beginning of last year Super intrigued by all the ballistics, and we'll we'll get into that as we as we move through the through our conversation. But what was it that made you want to jump into this industry? It seems like it is it takes a tremendous expense. The not not only the raw materials are expensive, but you know the machinery that it takes to to load. And you guys hand load everything. This isn't a mass produced shotgun shell. Every, every one that comes out of a box you guys have had in your hand and it's hand loaded am i correct uh yeah that's the, every single one uh right now you know i'm sure in the future uh to meet up with demand you know we're going to have to get some mechanical processes um to help us you know meet the demand cuz there's nothing worse than you know making a product that you can't meet the demand for but yeah every single one we do is is hand loaded uh, right now uh from from top to bottom so uh, from pouring the powder in there to crimping the right. shell, it's done by hand. Now, what was what was the thing that made that made you guys get together and start an ammunition company? Were you just not satisfied with because because what I find is mass produced loads uh, like we're all used to are very very inconsistent. I have found there's some that are a lot dirtier than others. There's some that the patterns are just not super consistent and some of that has to do with with you know shitty jokes um but the loads for the most part are very very inconsistent at least i have found what was it that made you guys get together and kind of say you know what i think we need to because i would imagine you guys just started doing them for yourself and other guys were like wait a minute (laughs) 
you need to load me some, right? Yeah, I mean, more or less in a in a nutshell, absolutely. Uh, you know, I was doing this for myself, and um, you know, I was kind of showing my buddies, and I I was like, man, you know, guys, this is really next level stuff. You know, about two or three years ago, about three years ago, and I uh, brought one of my partners, Jared, out there, and I I showed him a turkey pattern, and he was pretty impressed by it. And I think the kind of turning point for him was we went on a duck hunt together later that winter and he actually got to see it in action, um, you know, for himself. And we were kind of sitting around one night, uh, we had rented a, a little house in Oklahoma. We were kind of doing like a little public land duck hunt. And, um, you know, I was like, man, I, I really, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by the outdoors. I, I God, I, I, if I could hunt and fish wherever I wanted to, you know, I'd probably be a Walmart greeter. Uh, I definitely say I, uh, work to live. So, um, and work to live outdoors at that. So I told them this stuff was, you know, we finally got to see it. And I think we were, you know, kind of always wanted to own our own business. Uh, but you know, of course wanted to do something we love, uh, do something that's really, really passionate about. And it was just baffling that nobody had brought this to market yet. And I think everybody was scared from a price point from a, such a, such a new revolutionary concept. And we just kind of decided we were going to do it and went in and we grabbed all the money uh, we had had between me and another one of my partners, uh, Jason, we pitched up everything. And I'd say from concept to operations within 90 days, we were up with our FFL, our liability insurance and, and pressing shells that that turkey season for for customers, and it's really just been doing it ever since. Now, did you start with with tungsten, or did you did you immediate, or did you start with steel rather, and then gravitate to tungsten, or did you always um, know that kind of tungsten was the route that that you guys wanted to go? Uh, you know, it was just starting with TSS, uh, just because nobody was commercially making it. Um, it was kind of this underground market of hand loaders that, you know, whether or not a couple of them were loading out of their basement and, you know, selling to some people on the side, which, you know, obviously is their choice. Um, and then, uh, you know, you kind of had to buy it and load it yourself. And, you know, I remember looking for days trying to find just somebody who loaded this commercially because as much as I love doing it as a hobby you know working a full-time military job you know as an officer is, is time consuming the last thing I want to do is take hours on end to to load up a bunch of this stuff uh to go hunting so um you know just having just having the ability to provide these for guys that uh that want a, a, a better shell I mean it, it just seemed that once somebody built the next heavier than lead object you know, material, people kind of just stuck with it. And I, something better out there, I think people are going to gravitate towards it just because I think there's a lot of outdoorsmen that are kind of like us, you know, they work Monday through Friday or they work 40 hour, 50 hour weeks, uh, you know, good hardworking Americans that, you know, they, they work to live. And I think they, they work to live the best for the best life they can. And that means when they want to have experiences, they want to have the best experiences they can. And so I think this helps encapsulate that in their, their hunting and fishing, um, you know, adventures is being able to experience, uh, or get the best experience from it. So, uh, which I think is kind of in the end, what we're all really looking for. Yeah. Now we throw some terms around when we talk about tungsten TSS, explain to people what we're talking about. Um, when we say TSS and there's usually a number or like a, a rating behind it, explain because all tungsten is not created equal just like all steel is not created equal and there's a lot of differences and you know subtleties and nuances but explain when we say tss what we're talking about 
Yeah, TSS is um, it's an acronym for tungsten super shot, and so um, phrase was kind of coined uh, several years back, and it uh, tungsten super shot delineates any. Uh, blend of tungsten in a uh, shotgun pellet that uh, is comprised of 18 grams per cubic centimeter or greater. So uh, tungsten's been around for about the past 20 to 25 years um, in terms of a non-toxic load once the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, mandated away from lead in the early 90s. And so you have a different range of densities based on the amount of tungsten that is in your actual pellet. So uh, when you look at other things, you can get tungsten densities as low as high nines, low 10 grams per cubic centimeter. They're centered with a lot of iron and you can get a lower gram density. You can, you've seen your common heavier than lead stuff. Uh, you know, some other uh, commercial brands out there is heavy shot. You know, they make a wide variety. Uh, they've made heavy 13. So when you see heavy 13, that's 13 gram density tungsten. Uh, Kent makes their tungsten matrix, which is just over 10 grams per cubic centimeter. When you see the old federal heavyweights that are discontinued, those were 15 grams per cubic centimeter density. Um, so we we specialize in and we cut our teeth in tungsten super shot, which is 18 grams per cubic centimeter, or in our case, 18.1, you know, however you want to split wow. hairs there. But 18 grams per cubic centimeter or greater is what is considered to the industry tungsten super shot. Well, that answers a lot. <laughs> I mean, because I tell you, we we shot those things, and I was talking uh, on a podcast we did the other day um, about some, you know, we hunted the chickpea field in Canada this year. Birds were getting out. They were getting hitting the field kind of late, and they had one bird that was slipping out. I had one round left, and it was, when I walked it off afterwards, it, it was every bit of 60 yards, and it was just one of those shots that, you know, when birds are getting out, you're just like, we call it kind of a screw you shot. You know, like it's, you know, I'm just going to send this down range because I'm really pissed off at him and just laid the bird on top of the beat of the shotgun. And, um, that was the WS threes. I think I was shooting and I don't know. I think they were probably sixes. Uh, cause you had sent me some sixes, which I really, really, really liked. And this bird folded and was dead before it got to the ground at over 60 yards out of a Jeb's 685 choke. And so, look, I know a lot of guys are going to call BS when I say, but the the guys that were there know absolutely what happened. And we have just been over the moon impressed with the shells. And there's a lot of confusion because people will say, oh, well, you know, I'm shooting these shells that are 7 million feet per second and yours are only 1,500. And what I want you to do, and we've done this over the phone a couple of times, is go through the whole mindset of what guys need to think about when they're looking at the numbers that are on the top of a box of shells. Because I use the analogy, if I threw a handful of rocks at you, at 1500 feet per second, but I threw a handful of, you know, take your pick, ping pong balls at you at 1700 feet per second, which one is going to hurt more? Right. And so that's what I try. That's how I try to get guys' minds around this thing of speed is not, yeah, it's, it's great that you're, you know, your shells are, you're, you're, you're sending projectiles down range a little bit faster than I am but mine is killing shit when it's getting there and yours is not. Yeah. Um, you know, 
it's it's interesting. Um, marketing has done a lot to people. You know, uh, you know, we as Americans, bigger is better, faster is better. Uh, and, you know, in short, I mean, velocity is is really the velocity boils down to lead time. It's not going to hit harder. It's just going to get there quicker. Um, and mm-hmm. shotgunners are so different. And, you know, I've really understood this or I've seen this. Shotgunners compared to a rifle hunter, um, like and I'm talking like a like a true, you know, kind of guy that understands four and five and six hundred yard rifle shots where he understands things like the Coriolis effect and drop and windage. And he accounts for these on a scope when he gets ready to shoot. Um you know, they understand that shotgunners somehow think that gravity and speed is is not effective of their their shotgun shell, and so they think that their muzzle velocity is constant, and they think that their you know gravity doesn't have a play in it. And they, I think they try to see it. I think they try to understand it or wrap their head around it from you know how they you know want it to be. And you know what I always tell people is you know the funny thing about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. Um, and so. Uh, with this stuff, um, impact velocity, you really only need about 550 to 600 feet per second of impact speed um, of a, any pellet, steel, you know, a tungsten blend, bismuth, uh, lead, you know, at, at the target range to actually penetrate and, and achieve what you're trying to, to get, which is, you know, obviously kill the animal. Um, but the only difference is that uh, in reality, what it translates to is, you only really need about 1,350 feet per second muzzle velocity, 1,300 feet per second muzzle velocity to actually achieve that at about 40, 50 yards, have a killing speed or a killing energy. And what people don't realize is like your analogy, you said you grab a handful. What I tell people is grab a handful, you know, grab a, a wiffle ball and a baseball and fling it as hard as you can. You know, at the very, you know, T equals zero time, by the time it leaves your hand, it's probably going to be at the same muzzle velocity, but at home plate, that baseball is going to be moving a lot faster than that wiffle ball is and because it's heavier, it's denser, and it can able to carry its momentum better uh, as compared to that wiffle ball. It's, you know, just like you said, a handful of gravel or a handful of marbles is going to hit a hell of a lot harder than, you know, you winging a handful of ping pong balls. And density and surface area, being able to retain your mass and do it over a smaller surface area, you're not going to lose your, your velocity over the course of your journey. Uh, which it creates to more more kinetic energy, more momentum, uh, which leads to uh, you know harder hitting. So uh, you know, in a nutshell, density and pellet size or surface area, um, you know, they, they play a significant factor in um, not only your pattern but also your uh, impact velocity, which is you know what's actually going to do the killing when it when it gets to whatever distance you're shooting at. Right, and one of the things that I've noticed is how much better that mass, I guess it would be mass, holds that pattern tighter at a greater distance. Uh, As you said, atmosphere does not play as big of a factor on a heavier tungsten load as it does with a lighter steel load that is easier moved throughout the atmosphere by wind and that sort of thing. So I, and I think a lot of guys use this as kind of a crutch to make up for they really don't know how to lead the birds that they're shooting. I think they use that speed for, oh, well, I don't have to lead them as much, so I can just put it on them and swing. I think they use that whole speed thing between their ears 
to make up for the fact that they don't know how to shoot a shotgun. I guess maybe I could consider myself back in the day, uh, or, you know, guilty of it as well. Understanding leads important. And I think really how you kind of wrap your head around that is go out shooting some, uh, some clay pigeons. And I think once you realize that you kind of got to, doesn't matter if a clay pigeon's moving half the speed of a duck or two times the speed of a duck, mm-hmm. uh, being able to, uh, you know, understand lead time, I think comes from clay pigeon shooting and time, uh, time in the field. Um, but I would, I would kind of, circle back that you know even with a heavier pellet or even a less less than heavier pellet but smaller pellet um the science still plays the same effect on all the pellets it's just you know people understand why why are we using size shot sizes like seven and a half eight or nine and the best way i tell them is we're using those shot sizes for the same principles as that we use number four steel when we used to use number six lead it's the same principle, just amplified. So, you know, the same principles are there. You're just applying it in a, in a different scale and a different magnitude. So um, when, and, and in principle, you know, what you do with TSS is it, it, you can operate it in the big gauges like 10 and 12 uh, if you want to. Um, I personally still use it. Uh, really don't care what anybody else thinks. Um, it really allows the sub gauges to come alive. Uh, you know, we coined the phrase 20s, the new 12, uh, just because, it really is. We were able to turn a 20 gauge into uh, what 12 gauges only dreamed of doing 10 and 15 years ago. Uh, we're turning 28 gauges and four tens into, you know, honestly, what 20 gauges never even dreamed of 10 years ago. So, um, you know, but in in reality, you drop the shot size. So you incre- you spike the density so that you don't lose the mass. You drop the shot size so you get more pellets. And so in reality, you're putting you know, the equivalent of number four and five lead on target in terms of ballistics gel penetration, but you're doing it with three and four times the amount of pellets. So you're just saturating the target. You're not relying on inconsistent two, three, and five BBs to hit. You're, you know, every single time you're putting 100 or 200 in the core vital zone that result in what you just experienced dead before it hit the ground. Why don't you talk about the different, like if you go to your website and you look at the different types of and i'm talking about waterfowl ammo to begin with but we can get into in all of it because you have loads that are premium 100 percent tungsten and then some that have that blend of steel why don't you talk about the reason for that and maybe what you were trying to achieve with that and then the differences between like the the ws3s the pw3s and the z12s yeah, um, you know, we just try to offer a, a wide variety to meet a, a wide customer base. Um, and in reality, you, you try to look at, you know, this stuff, it, it does get very expensive just because tungsten on the world market is considered a precious metal or mineral, uh, or sorry, metal. Uh, so it does, it commands a price as such. When you look at steel, you know, steel is, is it, it can be effectively used, but it has its limitations. And uh, right now, you know, usually trades on the world market for about a dollar a pound. This stuff right now is trading with us anywhere between forty-three and forty-eight dollars a pound right now. And then that's that's you know including uh, other factors, world factors, and whether or not you um, you know include any uh, tariffs or things like things like that, or you know uh, importation taxes. But with that being said. Uh, it gets expensive quick uh, and you look at our z12 line you know it's our flagship waterfowl uh you know it gets up to about six dollars around which is pretty hefty for a uh you know waterfowl round because waterfowl is typically a volume-based shooting project 
so when you look at things like that, you know, those, those shells are kind of, they're, they're made for whoever wants to buy them, honestly. And some guys, when they go to, you know, like Alaska to hunt king eiders, you know, they want the best possible shell that's ever been made because those hunts are expensive and they may only get a handful of shots and they're only allowed to take two birds and they don't want to leave anything to chance. And that's, you know, the kind of the one end of the right. spectrum we make it. And then uh, we also make uh, our WS side, which is called our waterfowl series. That's what it stands for, or our PW series, which is platinum waterfowl. And they just offer different blends or amounts of uh, TSS mixed with steel to, to try to make something on a little better price point for guys that want to experience uh you know, TSS to a certain degree, uh, but don't feel like they have to spend six, they don't have to spend $6 a shell every time. So, um, you know, that's, that's really just what we offer for that. And then obviously our Turkey line is just pure TSS. Um, that's just because it really, it, 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 the performance is just night and day. And, and in reality, guys maybe kill one, two birds a year unless, and even then, if you're a super traveling Turkey hunter, like you might could kill 10 or 12 birds a year. Well, in reality, what's 10 or 12 shells, you know, over the course of a season. Yeah. Because I tell you where it gets expensive. Uh, when I see guys shoot that you, they get excited, they get a big group of birds breaking down in the hole. And what I see a lot of times is they'll shoot twice before they even have the gun shouldered, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, God, I, I, you know, I'm just as guilty sometimes, uh, flock shooting is bad. I'd rather, God, I'd rather kill ones and twos all day long than try to pick out groups of, you know, oh, 10, yeah. 15, and 20. Um, you know, flock shooting definitely uh, throws uh, throws you off your game. But, yeah, uh, you know, we've just been ingrained that, you know, we get three shots and every single volley whatsoever, we're going to pull it to the plug every single time. Um, you know, and our kind of concept is, well, what if you don't have to do that? Uh, you know, it's, it's just a different mindset of thinking, what if you don't have to pull it to the plug every time? What – what if you go to a place like Bayou Mita in Arkansas where you're only allowed to take 25 shells? Uh, why not take the best 25 shells? Uh, if you're going on a, right. a, you know, a big guided hunt that, uh, you know, costs a lot of money, are you really going to cheap out on your shells? Like, is that, is that where you're going to save your money enough to justify the trip? Uh, the actual part that, that does the killing. Um, and, and personally, no. And that's kind of where we just, you know, goes back to where we got started is, there was out there, there was something better. Uh, we personally would use it. Therefore we put our name behind it and it, we just wanted to offer something different. Um, uh, and just because it's never been offered before makes it different. Um, uh, but it also with anything that comes, you know, revolutionary also faces a, a lot of resistance, uh, you know, from performance to price points. Uh, um, and I just think it's so revolutionary that a lot of the industry hasn't had a chance to really wrap their head around it because, we've been ingrained we have to buy in 25 round boxes we have to pull we have to shoot three times every single time um and you know that if it's leaving the end of our gun we're clearly just shooting money away and uh and i just personally i don't agree with that mindset and so that's kind of where we are you know what it made me do was hold off on marginal shots that i wasn't totally sure about i mean if if I've got a high bird crossing or well that's usually my best shot uh, I mean the the easy ones I miss the hard ones I hit I, I, I don't know why that is but um, what I have found is that it doesn't make me empty the gun every single time a group of birds comes in it makes me focus more on my first shot um, which is the key to if you have a big and, and I qualify big is more than eight to 10 birds coming in at once. 
anything that distracts your focus from one bird is a big flock. I try to tell people that, um, but they don't listen. The, um, it, it made me focus more on my first shot to make sure that I killed the first bird that I was aiming at, and it made me take an extra second to make sure that my sight picture was was correct both eyes were open i'm staring at the target not at the end of the not at the end of the barrel um i guess what i'm saying is the the added expense of the round itself made me a better more conscious shooter you know it's kind of the first time we've ever really heard that feedback but um i mean logically i i can understand it um it, just because you know, every time you pull the trigger, it doesn't matter whether you're shooting steel or lead, dove loads or whatever. You're you're pulling money. You know, when you do that. Um, and right. So, no, it, it it makes sense for sure. It makes you ensure you're, you know, pulling the trigger when when you're morally confident, which is something, I guess, you know, we as hunters uh, should always strive to do. You know, you, I to me personally, when I pull the trigger, you know, we get a lot of client, our customers that call us in and say, you know, can I, can I test shoot this and then just put your, your shell in there and, uh, you know, everything be fine. And, you know, like for example, they want to pattern their turkey gun with, with lead loads and then just shoulder ours in, uh, for a season because they don't want to test it. And I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I understand where they're coming from, right? You want to be as efficient as possible. Um, you know, you don't want to just throw money away, but I tell them, know your equipment, know your limitations. Uh, there's no substitute for knowing your equipment because if you try to, to take the cheap route out, uh, you're going to hurt yourself in the long run and, you know, patterning one, two shells, maybe even three, um, and knowing your equipment and knowing your limitations when you pull that trigger, uh, it should never be. I wonder if I'm going to pull this off. It should. It should be a, a, a yes or a no. Um, and, and I'm hoping if you pull the trigger, it should be a yes. Uh, there, there should be. You should leave no doubt when you pull the trigger, um, which is is something that I, I, I tell customers to do because you know if you, you know, sometimes a lot of hunts can get on the line with that. And if you don't know your equipment, you're going to doubt yourself. And sometimes that confidence is the the deciding factor of whether you're going to pull it off or not, uh, you know, outside of your equipment as well. So, uh, you know, whether or not you have point of impact, point of aim issues, um, whether or not your red dot is sighted in, or you think it was from last season, uh, you know, whether your gun shoots high, low, left, right, uh, you know, mix of in between, it, it doesn't matter. Just know your equipment, know your limitations and your confidence is, is going to be at an all time high. Yeah. And, you know, I can say, first of all, Joey and logic don't often collide in the same sentence. So the fact that you said that was logical, um, I take that as a pat on the back because I think that's the first times anybody said, said something like that about something I said. Um, I can tell you that with the, you, you are 100% correct about having faith in or confidence in your equipment. Uh, because I know, and it's, it's going to sound weird, but I know for a fact when I shoot a Jeb's 685 choke through my Benelli 12 gauge and I'm shooting the WS3 shells in number sixes, I know exactly what the size of the pattern is at almost any given time downrange and where that pattern is going, like almost to where I can see it in my head. I know where the round is going and that has only come by taking my time, 
when you've got a big group of birds coming in, you actually have a lot more time than you think you do. A lot of guys rush just because they want to be the first ones to shoot, but you have an enormous amount of time. And like I said, when you focus, it made me focus on the fundamentals more. And what that actually did was I can, I can almost tell where that round is and it, it's, it's difficult to explain it, but I can almost see the pattern as it's on its way to the target. Does that, does that make sense? Or does that sound like complete bullshit? I guess, you know, I, I try to be as simple as possible sometimes. And I guess I just always circle back to knowing your equipment and knowing your limitations um, and knowing, you know, your personal um, idiosyncrasies and how they intermingle with those. Uh, it's just an important part of understanding yourself and how that plays a factor into, you know, your success in the field uh, in a nutshell. Uh, you know, I've, I've been out there. I've, I've burned through, you know, 40 to $50 at a time uh, in my own personal, you know, paying to buy the product ourselves, mm-hmm. myself, um, just to pattern my, my guns. I'm, I'm actually leaving for South Florida here tomorrow. Um, and I, I packed two guns, uh, one gun because I haven't even patterned it yet. And for all I know, it, it you know, it's a Benelli M2. Lord knows it could probably shoot high and Lord knows it could probably shoot high and left and, you know, not even be on it. And, uh, I haven't had a chance to pattern it yet, so I, I put in my trusty 870, which I've shot time and time again, uh, which I'm a lot more confident in. It. If you don't, but I patterned it, I know it. I've I've, I've shot it, you know, a hundred times. I've killed a pile of turkeys with it, uh, with using TSS, you know, our own company loads, and uh, I know it. And I'll bring two guns to a hunt. I can only kill one bird on because if I if I miss this one bird, you know, I may not even get another chance, and that, that I'm not even gonna not even gonna chalk it up to. Oh, it, it, it's not going to be me, and I'm going to take my 870 out, and I'm going to use it because I know it, and I'm going to try to pattern my gun while I'm down there. And if it's off, then you know I'm going to only know. But I, you know, it's just like it, to me, it's like archery hunting. I, I like to do a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm big time into archery, and you know, I don't go out and without knowing that I've sighted my bow in at 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60, and when I pull it, when I put the pin on it, I know exactly where it's going. Not, I hope it connects. Now, were you guys? Did you guys do the? Uh, you guys were at the turkey, uh, wild turkey show, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The National Wild Turkey Federation's uh, annual convention uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, at the Gaylord uh, is. Uh, you know, we go there. I've been going for God the past eight to ten years, uh, but this was our second year there, um, and it's our our biggest weekend, and biggest event ever. We get to interact with. The most of our customers, uh, we sold, gosh, I want to say we sold probably seven to eight thousand rounds um, this past time around there uh, in about three days. Uh, wow. It was just really, it, it was a, it's a really big event, but uh, allows us to get out, see our customers face to face, interact with them, and uh, allow them to know that there's more, uh, there's more than just a brand name. There's there's people behind the brand, and and that we stand behind what we do. Yeah, what kind of what kind of feedback are you getting from? Uh from guys that are that are starting to really open up to tungsten because you you i think when we started talking i mean the the turkey the the turkey side of hunting is really your bread and butter right i mean that's that was that was how you guys got started i think i remember you telling me yeah uh you know turkey hunting was really did and then we introduced it to the waterfowl side uh, and and it's just I think it's a code we're trying to continuously crack because um, I, I think from a waterfowl side, it's just, it's, it's price point. Um, 
you know, I think and and we, but also think it's reaching a level of market. I think when, you know, the, the model is proven time and time again, when people see the value of a product, they never question the price. Um, and it's not that we're trying to raise the price by any means. It's like I said, tungsten is a, is a very expensive metal on the world market. And, and, you know, if it was cheaper, we'd love to offer it cheaper. Um, but uh, I think once see people see the value in a product, they never question the price. And we, I always circle back to, uh, you know, other different industries, right? Um, even if it's whether it's from the hunting industry, from it's, you know, whether or not it's uh, Sitka, uh, you know, they, they're a quality brand name, um, but their gear is just top notch. And I think people, when they really see the warmth, uh, the level of warmth, the level of dry, the level of ingenuity that goes into those products um, and they experience them firsthand, they really don't they don't care about the price because they see the value in the product. And I think uh, from a waterfowl side, I think as we continue to grow and more and more people actually experience it, uh, they won't, you know, they'll see the value and that uh, it is truly something better and truly something different. Um, and from a turkey side, uh, that was easier to take off. And I think it was just because of price point, a guy might buy a box, maybe two a year as compared to buying a case for waterfowl and, you know, going through two to three cases a year, depending on how much he or she hunts. So, um, but you know, you, you look at cars and other industries, you know, once people see the value in a product, they never question the price. And I think the model has proven that premium products, uh, stand the test of time. You are exactly right. I, I could not have said that any better myself and coming from a, you know, I am, uh, in my day job, I'm a salesman. Uh, the, the products that we sell are by far the most expensive. Um, but they provide the highest level of value to the people that, uh, that buy them. And you're right. Once, once someone is, is, has made their mind up that they have the most valuable product that either, I don't care if it's widgets, if this widget makes you, you know, 25 to 30% more efficient, well, yeah, I'll spend 25 to 30% more, um, and so you're exactly right. The once someone, and, and so that's the big leap, right? Convincing people of the value of the product itself, which is what I have done. Anytime we've hunted with somebody new, and we start talking about shotgun shells, um, that and I'll I'll hand them, you know, a handful of them here, shoot them. Now don't empty your gun, but take your time, focus on the first part, and you know, I'll coach them through it, and. 10 times out of 10, I have yet to have somebody say, yeah, you know, I just, I just don't see the difference. I mean, usually their expression tells the story. I don't, I don't even have to ask how you like them. Um, so you're exactly right. What's coming new. Is there anything, um, anything that you guys are kind of toying with or looking at tweaking that you want to talk about now, or you want to keep it like super, super ninja Batman secret? Oh man, no, we've been tinkering with some stuff this off season. Uh, we had a really good year for field testing, had a couple of hiccups, but had overall had a lot of great success. Uh, this fall we'll debut a series, a new lineup series for waterfowl that'll encompass uh, different materials, different price points that allow people that want to want to be a part of the brand, uh, want to actually um, take part in what we do. Uh, you know, there'll be, you know, a lot more offerings. Um, and then next year in Turkey, we'll, uh, we'll have some stuff. Uh, we're going to be field testing a, a lot of stuff this spring and, 
we hope to um, add to our turkey lineup the following year as well. And uh, honestly, just kind of keep continuing to incorporate our feedback from ourselves, our customers, um, and then incorporate that and just continuously evolving into a, a better company. Uh, you know, if we can be better tomorrow than we were today, then, you know, w we consider that a success. The first time we had a conversation, you were telling me, look, I'm going to send you some different loads. Uh, but I want you to try them and I'm not going to add any bias by saying, now this is our premium load, but this one is kind of our medium load. And so, um, that showed me that voice of customer for you guys, um, whether it's how much somebody likes something or wishes you would change something is very, very important. And you don't see that, um, you don't see that in a lot of the companies. I'll tell you who else does a really good job of that. That's Tangle Free. Um, we've been, you know, partnered with Tangle Free now for a couple of years, and their voice of customer, tell us what you like, tell us what you don't like, and if it's something that we can incorporate into a product that makes it work better for you, we will absolutely do it. And, dude, it's rare. It's like super rare that companies will actually listen to the people that send them money. I guess maybe that's what makes us, uh, you know, a, a little bit different as compared to maybe a lot of other, you know, you don't really see a lot of niche ammunition loaders. You know, you really just see a lot of big platforms um, or big companies that produce a, a very volume based product. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they, they try to they try to collectively build the best product as, as from the means that they can. Um, but I think being a niche uh, ammunition company where we can slow down and be able to operate how we want to operate and do what we want to do and incorporate that customer feedback. I mean, you know, it's just something about me personally. If, if I wouldn't put my name behind it, um, not necessarily if I wouldn't even put it in my own gun, you know, I just, I, I have a hard time being able to stand in front of a customer at a booth, uh, you know, working things like the NWTF and trying to convince a, a dad and his kid, uh, you know, why they should use it. And they're like, well, well, do you use it? And I'm like, well, no, I don't, but you can't like, it just, it, if I couldn't look that kid straight in the eye and do it, it's just, it, it's just something that we don't mesh with. So I think our customer feedback, I think uh, continuously evolving and, and prototyping um, is just something that leads us to, to try to build a better product um, that we can. And we're just not other companies, you know, Google is not Amazon. Um, you know, Apple is not, Amazon, Amazon's not Google, you know, and, and so forth. So the, each company offers something different and what they do offer differently is what makes them unique. And I think for us, what we offer is just makes us unique. And I think it allows us to resonate with our customer base. And I, I don't see a strain from that uh, anytime soon. Now, if, if someone wanted to purchase, are you, do you have retailers or is the best way still through the website? Yeah. Um, so we, we sell, we do select to, uh, we do a retail front and we do, we sell a direct online as well. Um, you know, we, we have a series of retailers that primarily strand in the Southeast um, from Arkansas to Tennessee to Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, um, and South Carolina uh, with a couple up North as well. Uh, we've been growing a lot on the retailer front um, which is something that we, we really like as well, just because uh, we don't really participate in buy groups. Uh, we may in the future, but we, we haven't messed with them yet. Um, and, and we kind of like servicing, you know, the quote unquote mom and pop outdoor stores uh, growing up in, 
in small towns and and being able to experience those you know those are those are hard-working americans that are you know you're not putting you're not putting stock options back on their table you're you know you're helping families you're helping support your communities and i think that's something that's very important to us to continue to provide um in the future and not just servicing things like big box stores um that again they have their place uh don't get me wrong but uh but then also selling direct as well you can go to the website uh, apexmunition.com and we sell direct as well you can sign up for notifications we offer shipping deals there's a you can see all the retailers on there find your closest retailer you can see the library we call it tss library where you can see like how many pellets are per ounce how many pellets come in a shell you know we try to put some informational uh things up there to talk about you know tss and and, yeah. and how things like density and velocity uh affect your shot shell and patterning and so you know we try to just create this you know, holistic company that just enables us to serve the American sportsman. Yeah, that's, I noticed uh, on your website, there is a ton of just raw data on what your loads do downrange. I mean, from number of shot, number of BBs in a shell and what TSS really means and how does it impact. So if anyone, it's apex-ammunition.com. And in that uh, that Intel tab, I believe it is, there's just a running ton of information there for people that want to know the science behind it. And there's a lot of it. There's a lot of science behind it. The one thing that I like is when I open up a box of shells, there's a date and a set of initials on the lid of that box. Tell me what that is. I know what it is. Tell everybody else what it is. Yeah. So, um, you know, with anything, right, we want to keep accountability of our product. And if we start seeing some issues, um, uh, we want to be able to trace it back to, you know, what traditional companies would do is what they call a lot number, right? You know, what lot was this built in? We, you know, we do a production date so we can transfer back to uh, log any data if we have any issues. And so uh, what we also did is took it a step further. And, uh, you know, we had our, the, the, since all of our stuff's hand built, as you know, um, the guy that actually packaged it is is arguably the guy that built it. And so, uh, each box that he loads, or he or she loads, uh, they will um, initial or hand initial that they built that box, um, and then they'll hand date the date that they built it on. So, uh, because we build daily, our you know quote unquote lot numbers can change from a daily basis. But we that's why we stamp them with a production date or handwrite them in a production date uh, with the guy that built it. So you know that. You know that American flag and made in the USA isn't just a, an emblem or an image embedded, in a, you know, in a corner of a box up in the top right corner to let you know it. It's, you know, mm -hmm. no kidding. An American worker actually built that product and hand signed it before it went out the door. They they put their name behind it uh, just as they would put their name behind anything else. And uh, I think it just adds a, a unique touch to uh, the customer when they open it up that there's a level of you know human to human connection there that just can't be replaced with. Uh, machines and and you know production lines yeah what let me ask you this because one of the things i forgot to ask you when we were talking about tss are the differences in barrel pressure between steel and tungsten are you noticing a, a big difference there or is it kind of about the same i know when you went from lead to steel there was a huge increase in barrel pressure because as those bbs in with lead come out of a barrel they're being conformed as those bbs kind of run into each other 
whereas the steel, they don't compress, they bounce back, and it builds your barrel pressure up. Now, that's kind of a simple explanation, but for all intents and purposes, that's what's happening. Are you seeing an increase in barrel pressures with tungsten? So a couple of things dictate barrel really? pressure in a gun, obviously, um, or actually several things do. One, obviously, is your uh, shot hardness. So the actual hardness of your pellet, whether um, it's steel, tungsten-based, uh, whether it's lead, whether it's bismuth, whether it's uh, different types of uh, tungsten, um, whether I'm sorry, different alloys of tungsten blended in. So your shot hardness is one. Um, another one is your shot column, the length of your shot column. So with um, tungsten, it's it's much more denser, right? So you're able to, like what we do in TSS is condense that shot column so it's much shorter. Therefore, there's less friction against the barrel. Uh, that's another thing. And then obviously different gauges, uh, different powders, different wads. Uh, because we use a very hard shot, we want to protect uh, our customers' barrels, so we use a very thick and supple wad uh, as compared to something that might be thinner used in lead where, you know, a lot of times back in the old days before plastic wadding was actually developed, uh, they were using just pure fiber, what they call fiber wads, fiber underneath lead shot, and the lead was contacted against the barrel. And uh, mm -hmm. and, and so uh, there's separate things or several things that can control barrel pressure. With the TSS, um, it actually, the cool thing is we can really reduce the barrel pressure compared to steel and lead because of not necessarily the shot hardness, um, but, but because we can shorten that shot column. And so we can create a less surface area of friction against that barrel through the wadding. Okay we can actually okay. reduce chamber pressures and still carry those big heavy payloads um, that the industry hasn't seen before. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what we're really, what I wanted to get into, Nick, is because this this can be so confusing to the guy that doesn't understand ballistics uh, like you do. And I, I don't feel that there's just a ton of good comparison. I, I think a lot of the comparisons maybe are, are I hate to say skewed, but um, you know they were done a while back, and I think with the with tungsten on the market now, I think there needs to be another kind of comparison. So, go through, um, you know, just say tungsten versus bismuth, for example. Um, looking at tungsten, looking at uh, bismuth or bismuth tin alloy, I guess is is really what's in those what's in those shot shells. Um, is what is the closest is bismuth closer in um is is it is it a closer substitute for lead in that it's more malleable enough to use like an older model firearms with fixed barrel chokes that that can't handle the barrel pressures of steel um yes and so bismuth is essentially the halfway point point on density between lead and steel so it's like the perfect Right. middle ground if you will in terms of just from a density perspective mm -hmm. um it is soft and malleable like lead they do use a tin in it to try to harden it up because bismuth oftentimes is known to uh, fragment very badly and so because it's so brittle uh, it can break very easily there's not a lot of elasticity to the metal um or there's not a plastic range as we engineers call it it's very brittle uh once you put a lot of pressure on it it's going to just fragment which can lead to um essentially more pieces of shot, if you will, uh, but it can also lead to inconsistent patterns uh, as well. So uh, with that being said, bismuth is a soft metal like lead and it is used in older guns. Uh, traditionally, those, they, um, they're used in older guns that not necessarily hinder the chamber pressures of steel because you can, you can 
have a, a very, very low chamber pressure uh, steel shot shell round. Um, it's the hardness against the barrel that is what you're uh, trying to uh, reduce. And so steel is as hard as the barrel it's made. And so if the steel is harder than the, or harder than that shotgun barrel was made, and we talk about modern carbon steel alloys, um, where very, you know, uh, high tensile strength, low carbon alloy barrels, um, mm -hmm. you can get that, that hardness of the barrel and it's not going to damage the gun. And so even with ours, we tell customers, uh, you know, as long as it's not Damascus steel, which is a different type of steel produced than what we commonly think of as a low carbon alloy steel today. Um, we, you know, we've had a lot of customers use old 16 gauges that were made in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, the first thing we tell them is um, if it's modern steel, it should be OK. Um, and then also too, just consult with your local gunsmith. Uh, your local gunsmith can tell you if it can withstand uh, current current chamber pressures. Um, if it can withstand the current chamber pressures, um, then uh, you know we we feel it's safe to use in those guns. But we always tell people to consult with our local gunsmith. Which, um, but that being said, that's kind of the reason for bismuth is because it's soft enough that you don't have to worry about damaging a very very old um, you know side by side shotgun that was made long before uh, you know steel was ever even thought of. That that makes sense in that um, your your barrel has a certain hardness, and then the pellets that you're sending down that barrel has a certain hardness, and whatever is harder wins, right? In 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 short, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, whatever is harder wins is. Uh, you know, they had the Rockwell hardness scale, and so when you have something that's harder than um, you know your barrel, you can you can you can cause damage to it, not always. And so our tungsten shot is actually harder than a steel barrel. However, when we use very thick, supple uh, plastic wadding for it, um, we prevent barrel scoring because we prevent contact with the barrel. It's not the actual hardness of the shot. It's that you don't want to have any of those pellets make contact with the barrel because once they mm -hmm. do, then you're going to cause damage. Right, right. And I, I would assume that with the thicker like you said the the more thicker supple wadding that limits the number of bbs that you can fit in that shotgun shell which is which is you know it it, it can be a problem but i'll let you talk about how you get around that um that i mean that's kind of the great thing about uh you know running with this high density tungsten is that it, it doesn't matter. We're squeezing in in three inch, 12 gauges. We're squeezing in two and a quarter ounces of load. Um, and we even have room to play with that if we really wanted to design something that's even, you know, higher. Um, but we're squeezing in two and a half ounces in a three and a half inch load. Um, we're squeezing in things like ounce and five eights and 20 gauge, all while still using these very thick, supple wads. Um, and it's not necessarily that we can't squeeze in the pellets. It's it, because we're dropping the, the shot size so much, we can squeeze in a bunch of pellets uh, with without really sacrificing performance. Right. So, you know, and, and we'll do kind of a pros and cons before we get off, but bismuth is a decent in-between um, in between substitute for between lead and steel is, is basically what I'm getting from, from that. From a density perspective, yeah. Um, and you know, there, I, the problem personally that I have with bismuth is that uh, if you don't buffer it really well, um, it fragments. And when you fragment, to me, if you're getting inconsistent patterns, um, it can lead to inconsistent patterns. Um, then you get inconsistent performance. And I've just never been personally a fan for, um, you know, if I want, I want my first shot to be just as good as my third shot. Um, 
And so uh, with bismuth to lighten that deformation under what they call under setback, which is the initial forces of when you pull the trigger, the primer ignites the powder, the powder burns, and it puts a bunch, all those pellets on setback, it can deform. And it, it if you haven't seen, it can do it to lead too. Um, lead can deform because it's soft, right? You should be able to grab a pair of pliers with it and bear down on it and, and change it. Well, you know, imagine taking a projectile and going from zero to, you know, 1500 feet per second in, in, in less than a second, uh, you're, you're putting a lot of force on those pellets. And so when they're, they're soft, they can deform or fragment, uh, which can lead to inconsistent performance. And so, uh, from a density perspective, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great in between. I mean, anything more dense is going to hit harder. It's just simple physics, right? If I found something to make that was just between density and, or I'm sorry, between bismuth and steel, uh, you know, some, you know, if I copper plated steel to bring it up a little bit, uh, it would be, it would, you know, in theory, have more energy than just regular plain low carbon steel shot that we use. Yeah. Now describe, you mentioned something that I don't know, uh, that, everyone listening will grab onto but describe what you're talking about buffering when you build a shell um it, explain how what buffering is and how that kind of uh, how that kind of compensates uh, when you build that shell uh buffer so uh, what i tell people is um you know when they try to say what is buffer well buffer is a you can use a myriad of types of buffer but buffer is designed to do a couple things it's designed to lessen uh it's designed to sh distribute the forces under setback across evenly across the shot column so that not all the pellets are taking all the forces uh, i'm sorry all the bottom pellets or each pellet um it distributes the forces evenly and then also it acts as a lubrication um, and so when you, you prevent this thing called bridging, where if you try to send too many pellets through a hole at once, these pellets can kind of interlock and they can, what they call build a bridge. And so you get the term bridging and it's very common with very large steel pellets when you try to choke them down because what's going to give, you know, whatever's the least hard, um, or the, you know, whatever's more soft is going to, to give. And so, uh, buffer also acts as a, an absorber of, um, forces between the, the pellets. And so when the pellets start bouncing off each other uh, down the barrel, they'll, they'll, they transmit forces between one another and that buffer is there designed to absorb those forces. So what you're left with is a, um, a ultimately you're trying to get a better pattern um, by using buffer. And there's a myriad of things. I mean, I've heard of, uh, you know, guys using flour. Uh, no kidding. Go to the store, buy white flour. Um, I've seen it. Um, you know, there's polyurethane type buffers. Uh, we've seen uh, ground up um, uh, other types, not necessarily flour, but other ground types of organic material. Um, and uh, essentially what I tell people that buffer does is imagine you're standing in a hallway and you have a handful of like bouncy balls and you threw them down the hallway. Well, without buffer, that's essentially what those pellets are going to do. They're going to bounce off each other as they're going down in between the wad uh, pedals going down with a bunch of force. And then as soon as they get out of the barrel, they're just, boom, all those, all that energy has been transmitted to each other and you're going to get what we call flyers. And so that buffer is there designed to absorb that energy between transmitted, um, between this transmitted between pellets so that you don't get a lot of flyers as it comes out of the barrel. And so it, to the guys, listen, if you've ever opened up a shell and dumped it out and you get this white silicone looking stuff, that's what buffer is. Yeah, uh, it, but it but it not necessarily doesn't uh, it doesn't have to be um, 
you know, it doesn't have to be a, a white silicon. I mean, there's several things that have been, like I said, I've we've seen right. people use ground organic material, um, you know, up to no kidding flour. Uh, but yeah, if you if you see uh, a white substance in, um, or or seen some different color variations as well, but traditionally your most ones are you know a white clearish looking substance. If you pour it out, that's 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 your buffer. Right. Now, so the the whole reason that we're having this conversation is because in 1991, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service banned the use of lead shot. And as you can imagine, uh, you, you've probably heard of all the conspiracy theories and, you know, there was no uh, studies done as to mortality rates due to, um, you know, expended uh, lead ammunition birds. In, well, I, I did some I did some digging around. Um, and I pulled some things out of the original study um, and, and a compilation of the study that was put out on the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and so I just I wanted to read some of the things that I found and see if we can talk about them, see if they make sense. Uh, I by no means am on one side of the fence or the other. I'm just, I'm just reading the data, right? I'm, just, I'm looking at what they put out and saying this is what they based the new law on. And so some guys will look at it and say that that makes sense. Some guys will look at it and say it's BS because it doesn't line up with what they want to hear. But here's what, here's what uh, one part of the study said. <clears throat> In North America, mortality due to lead poisoning from the ingestion of lead shot was first reported in waterfowl in 1894 in Texas and North Carolina. I didn't know that. Um, and by the 1950s, an estimated 2 to 3 percent, or what equated to 1.6 to 2.4 million waterfowl across all North American flyways were dying annually of lead shot poisoning. And that came from two studies in 1894, one in 1959, and then the one I'm reading to you from in 2000. Um, the early accounts by the two studies done in 1894 include the very first description of gross toxicological effects of lead poisoning in wild birds in the United States. Uh, and there was another study in 1919, reviewed clinical signs and lesions of lead poisoning in waterfowl and reported the results of an experimental study of lead shot poisoning in ducks. And so here's what that study showed. The study showed that mortality varied in mallards dosed with one to three number six lead shot, but six number six lead shots you know, in other words, ingesting six were always fatal. Similar findings were noted in northern pintails and redheads. This was in 1919. Uh, and then in 1937, there's a report that said that the frequency of lead shot detection in several thousand gizzards from various species of ducks ranged from 1 to 39%, which is a, uh, I, don't, I don't know the reason for that wide range depending on the species, and suggested and suggested that lead poisoning may be an important factor in the decline of waterfowl populations. In an early study of a variety of water bird species, lead poisoning was the third largest cause of mortality noted in 3,000 carcasses. Now, note, the study doesn't say what number one and number two were. Um, and then in the early 1980s, an association between bald eagle deaths and lead shot used in waterfowl hunting became apparent. At that time, the bald eagle was listed under the Endangered Species Act. A number of cases determined that bald eagles were exposed to lead by feeding on crippled 
or non-retrieved hunter shot waterfowl containing ingested or embedded shot. And that was in 1980. Uh, 1983 also was another study. Uh, between 1967 and 1982, an estimated 7% of the bald eagle population in the United States was lead poisoned. That was determined in 1983. Personally, you know, like I told you before, um, I'd like to believe that, you know, while there's many, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, what's the word? I'm, I'm drawing a blank here, like a, a like a conspiracy Learn, learned scholars. Yeah, no, uh, conspiracy theory. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. I know there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there, but I, I just, I'd like to believe that you know, as an individual who's uh, had the the fortune to um, get education in a, from an advanced perspective, not only in a bachelor's degree in engineering, but also a master's degree in engineering, that uh, you know, the scientific process is in science and physics, you know, the, the, the great thing about science in general is it's, it's kind of true whether people believe it or not. And I'd like to believe that many of these organizations, organizations that, uh, you know, like today, the Federal Wildlife, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, state and federal game wardens, many of these individuals have to have a bachelor's degree just to apply for the job. And many of them have requirements in actual uh, wildlife backgrounds. Uh, but I'd like to believe that the researches and these often things are published uh, by individuals that have graduate and doctoral degrees that are peer-reviewed journals. So um, while I, I don't personally go out there and collect information to try to rebuke them, I, I, I tend to lean on these professionals with their advanced education degrees uh, and peer-reviewed articles before they publish something uh, that they probably hold some merit to what they're publishing. So, um, you know, in reality, I, I kind of guess I'm, I'm biased to say I believe their studies because I understand that these government organizations follow things like the scientific process. Uh, they understand things as simple concepts like dependent and independent variables, and they they devote their life to a profession um, where they try to better what was before it was, you know, better tomorrow than what it was today. So, um, you know, what that means to me is if they have a, a series of empirical data that they've gathered that they can tie back to um, certain causes that we can further the North American wildlife uh, model, uh, then I'd like to believe that that we're onto something. And we as, as hunters and fishermen, and even people that just enjoy the outdoors, us as conservationists, uh, should probably take steps to um, look for creative ways to you know, make a, a brighter future in the outdoors. And if that means we have to use things other than non-toxic, then uh, you know, I guess we're going to continue to do so. Yeah, and so what I'm always what I wanted to see was okay. So what is the what's the effect, right? What is the result of changing our practices? Which is which is what you which is what you just talked about. If we're going to do something, let's make sure that it has a beneficial impact on the ecosystems that you know that these birds live in and that we hunt in. So here's what it found, and it, 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 I pulled this out too, sources, um, sources of lead ammunition remaining after the ban. So the effectiveness of the 1991 regulations that banned lead for waterfowl hunting in the United States has been evaluated in comparing lead shot ingestion rates before and after the ban. So, and this is what I wanted to see. So five years after the ban, a study of over 16,000 mallards along the Mississippi Flyway estimated that mortality from lead shot exposure declined 64%, equating to 1.4 million of the 90 million ducks in the 97 fall flight uh, that were spared from lead poisoning. That was in 2000. 
Um, now, my next question is, okay, well, then they should be seeing non-toxic shot ingested too. I mean, if that was a real thing, then they should be pulling steel shot out of these birds too. Here's what they found. Although the study indicated a similar overall rate of shot ingestion for these birds. So 8.9% of these birds were found to have ingested, uh, you know, spent ammunition after the ban versus 8% uh, before the ban. So in, in other words, they're saying they're finding the same amount of shot that they were ingested. And so you would expect to see, okay, then we should be seeing a lot of steel shot in there. And that's exactly what they found. Two-thirds of the shot ingested were non-toxic. So that, to me, you know, the non-believe me, the, the non-scientific mind, just logic will tell you that it, 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 it is having the desired effect. Um, they said the same thing in Canada. Um, a study in Canada reported that bone lead concentrations in ducks declined by about 50% after the, after the Canadian ban on lead shot for waterfowl hunting. Um, and it goes on to say these studies demonstrate that lead shot ban was effective at reducing but not eliminating lead exposure. Because remember, I, I said two-thirds of the shot were non-toxic. That means that one-third were. So they're getting two-thirds of steel or something else, one-third of, of lead. Um, so, you know, to the, to the layman that applies logic like me, that would appear that that ban was effective if the goal was reducing the amount of ingested lead. Because the other thing that they were saying, um, that the study was saying, is that the, 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 the scavenging birds, like the, the eagles and vultures and turkey vultures that feed on wounded or non-retrieved game birds are experiencing lower rates of mortality uh, from lead poisoning also. You know, I, I guess I'd e- to even take a further step back and, and say that, uh, you know, we as a, a species, I think, uh, you know, as we have the ability to, you know, deduce reasoning, I have to understand that our actions have second and third order effects, and sometimes we can't foresee all of them. And I'd say a perfect example is the current snow goose conundrum that we're in, where we have conservation seasons to try to knock back numbers because they're literally eating the tundra. Um, out of house and home. And so when we in places like Louisiana and East Southeast Texas blew up these rice fields uh, for production, well, we attracted a lot of a snow geese for them. And so when they eat all these rice, they're healthier, they're fatter, they're able to get back farther. Um, and when they get back to the tundra, they are able to breed better. Um, and when they breed better, they create healthier offspring and those offspring then come down to the rice fields again and they go back and forth and their population grows. And now that we're now that they're literally eating the tundra out of house and home to the point where I think, uh, I, I can't remember the exact study, but they were saying somewhere along the lines where polar bears had uh, increased their their diet like uh, 30% on snow goose eggs alone in the tundra, yeah. um, where, where polar bears are actually eating eggs from snow geese as, as a part of their significant portion of their diet, all because we increased our rice field production in the south. And so um, I think it's just important to, you know, uh, understand that, you know, when we use things like lead shot, we may not know that, uh, you know, bald eagles in Alaska eating crippled birds are now having trouble uh, reproducing 
because we're using a certain shot that we might shoot a duck in Southern California or, you know, in Colorado or New Mexico or, you know, where have you, wherever. Um, and these second and third order effects aren't always understood or anticipated or even expected. Um, so it, it's just one of those deals that we're kind of learning as we go along. Yeah, cause and effect is a very, very real thing. And it's just, it's impossible to know um, when you put x into the equation on one side what is with all the variables and variance what is x you know times whatever plus whatever is going to come out on the other end um you know i do i trust the findings just because they came just because the government says so no but i mean there's a lot there's a lot of smart people um working on this stuff but show me data uh, show me data from other studies, and, and we can we can have an argument. For now, what I read to you, this this is what we have to go on. That's what the law was. That's what the the change in the law was based on. Here's some other really interesting data from the very same study, and it's about the amount of fragmented lead that's found in processed deer meat. And uh, dude, I, I I read this, and I I had like no idea. So this is from the same study. Lead fragments have also been detected in meat processed from hunter-killed carcasses. Fragments were commonly observed via radiograph in white-tailed deer killed using copper-jacketed lead bullets, all the same brand, caliber, and bullet weight, during the Wyoming hunting season, and then commercially processed, each at a separate facility. This was done in 2009. Um, all 30 carcasses contain bullet fragments, uh, anywhere from 15 to 409 fragments per carcass. And it's, again, you said lead fragments. It absolutely does, right? You, that's what you, you said uh, just a few minutes ago. Um, so anywhere between 15 and 409 fragments per carcass with fragment separation up to 45 centimeters. So in other words, when it enters the cavity or the meat, it, it you know, it separates up to 45 centimeters. In ground meat, fragments were visible in packages from 24 out of 30 deer, which is 80%, and in 74 out of 234 packages, which is 32%. Uh, analysis of the fragment excised from ground meat from 13 deer identified lead in 25 of 27 samples, which is 93%. Nine samples contain copper at a greater than background level. In Wisconsin, lead was detected in 30 of 199 samples, commercially processed, uh, processed packages of venison, and eight out of 98 samples were collected from hunters. Lead concentrations averaged 15.9 parts per million weight, uh, wet weight in commercially processed samples that tested positive for lead, and 21.8 parts per million wet weight in hunter-submitted samples that tested positive for lead. Um, pharmacokinetic modeling using the U.S. EPA Integrated Exposure Uptake Biokinetic Model, so we all know what that is, um, predicted a risk of elevated blood level concentrations in children from eating as little as one venison meal per month. In North Dakota, 100 samples of ground meat packages were selected from 15 randomly from 15,250 packages donated to food pantries high definition computer tomography revealed metal fragments in 59 of 100 packages 
of 15 samples from all 100 packages, one tested positive for 120 parts per million lead dry weight. Lead, this is, this is the one that got me, lead concentrations in five samples known, con- known to contain metal fragments range from 4,200 to 55,000 parts per million dry weight. That's a lot of lead, dude. Yeah, I mean it. Uh, it definitely is a lot of lead. I just, I guess I'd also say that if we uh, determine that lead-based gas and uh, uh, or you know lead, uh, you know s- substantial amounts of lead in our gas and in the the paint in our house is bad, well then you know I I, I guess we can't selectively choose when lead is good. No. Uh, so, no. Um, but nonetheless, neither here nor there, I guess. Did you did you know that that was a thing though? Um, fragmented lead in ground meat deer samples? I don't know if I know it. I would guess I would say, like, I wouldn't be surprised, I guess is the best phrase. I no, I mean, it makes sense, right? That's the thing. If you shoot, I mean, if you're a bow hunter, though, and you process your own meat, I guess That's it's not right. a problem. It's not a worry That's about That's right. Like, you know, <laughs> most, of your, most of your stuff is, you know, copper-plated lead rifle bullets and then lead slugs. Yeah. So, again, like I said, this is only the data that I've seen. That, that we have to talk about. I'd love to see contrasting data or data that, that you know, either either enforces uh, or, or, you know, supports what we've talked about or uh, refutes it. I'm not saying that we need further regulation for non-toxic rifle bullets, even though I wouldn't be surprised if, if that happened. Um, I'm just saying that before, before we go jumping on the conspiracy theory bandwagon, um, read the data that's out there, guys, and, and just try to try to make an educated decision. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation now, is so that you can make a better decision, an educated decision, when you're standing in, um, you know, Cabela's or Academy or wherever you get your your shotgun shells from, and the shelf runs from sea to shining sea with so many different options, and you're sitting there looking like a monkey doing a math problem. It's because we don't have the education. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what I wanted to do uh, next before we, before we wrap up is, so guys that are going to buy shells, um, can, we, can we go through some of the pros and cons of steel and bismuth and tungsten? I think, I think we've, we've kind of touched on most of them, but I want to just, in wrapping up, say, so, okay, when you guys are going to make your choice, if this is what you're looking for, this is what you should be looking for um, in all of those numbers that are on the side of the box. So uh, pros and cons of steel, I mean, I, I think we know those from shooting them long enough. Um, you know, there's certainly uh, cost benefits to it. Um, but if you can, like, if we can talk about steel, then bismuth, then tungsten, because lead is off the table. We that's That's not an option anymore. The law is what it is. And so... Um, let's do kind of a pros and cons of steel versus bismuth versus tungsten, and hopefully we can educate some guys when they go make the decisions this year. Yeah, um, I mean, the, there's pros and cons to everything, right? So steel, obviously, it's it's your most economical form of shot, um, and then uh, you know, but it's the, also the lowest density, right? So the the less dense you are, the the bigger the mass you have, or the bigger surface area you need to make up for that pellet's overall mass. Uh, you know, basic density principles. Uh, and so that you end up shooting larger shot sizes, which you get less pellets. And so with that being said, uh, that less pellets or those larger pellets create a larger surface area. They they force you to get less pellets per ounce um, 
or I'm sorry, less pellets in your shell overall. They force you to uh, lose a lot of your your velocity right off the bat, um, just due to their large surface area size. And so you don't really get to maintain um, the effectiveness where you can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which we specialize in is, is the tungsten super shot, is that you can drop the pellet size uh, phenomenally and you know be able to use uh, things like seven and a half, eights and nines on pellets uh, without sacrificing um, uh, your payload, if you will, or your uh, or your lethality. So, when you look at bismuth, uh, your next one that we have, and uh, in, in, in between, I guess you could copper plate um, a little bit of uh, steel if you really wanted to. Uh, I've seen a couple people out there have a, a copper uh, plating or another term, a uh, different type of plating process called cladding. Uh, they put copper cladding to to raise the density up a little bit, and you get about the low eights um, in in density. But again, that copper, just like any other thing, is is expensive. So trying to get that copper on steel. Uh, is a cost. Um, then you look at bismuth, which is our next in line after that, where we use a bismuth tin alloy to try to get it and center it into a ball uh, and try to bring up a, a little bit of its uh, uh, its hardness so it doesn't fragment as much. Um, and again, you just increase the density so you're getting um, a, a very, you know, a little bit heavier version. Then of course there's lead, which again is off the table, but you have lead, which is still predominantly used in dove loads, um, predominantly used in a lot of turkey loads. Um, and then you have... Uh, you know, a different variety of tungstens along those density mixes, depending on what uh, company you use. Uh, they can range anywhere from high nines, uh, high nine, about 9.6, 9.7 grams per cubic centimeter. Um, and they're usually alloys of tungsten, uh, nickel and iron, just depending on different varieties of the actual mixture. And then you can um, go up to, and there's some that are offered in low tens, uh, there's some that are offered in the 11s, uh, I think some in 12s, and then usually they cap out around 13. Uh, there has been uh, what they call 15 gram tungsten, so a company um, offers them called uh, heavyweight, um, and so uh, 15 gram tungsten is another one, and then of course all the way at the end of the spectrum is us and, and 18 gram tungsten, and the basic principles are the same. The more tungsten it is, uh, because tungsten on the world market is considered a precious metal, therefore uh, the price is going to dictate, so it's it's depending on what the world market is commanding for a price of it. So uh, the more tungsten you have in something, the more expensive it is. Nickel, iron um, are, are obviously much cheaper. Um, so with that being said, the more tungsten ratio you have in there, the more dense of the pellet you're going to have, but it's also going to be more expensive. Uh, and so that's really the principle is it is it just depending on what the cost of the material is, is going to be your um uh, your driving factor and when you purchase a, a product. And so uh, the pros and cons, obviously softer metals are easier on barrels. Um, and so you can use thinner wads or sometimes like in versus in lead, you don't have to use a, a plastic wad at all. You can use what they call a fiber base wad. And uh, so softer metals are, are a little bit easier on shotguns. Um, you know, the harder pellets are going to be, um, you know, you have to protect your barrel more and take actions to produce them better. Um, to protect your your equipment, and then of course, like I said, the the pro really the, the there's really no con to getting a better shell, um, other than you're going to get more lethality and 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 bag more birds. Uh, it's just going to be cost associated with it based on the 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 concentration of tungsten mixed in with whatever blend of tungsten it's using. That's good information. You know, all the stuff comes out at different times, and it's like so much so much marketing, um, which is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Um, marketing, be it what it being what it is, we're we're suckers for um, we're suckers for a slick marketing campaign. What are what are some of the marketing tricks that ammo manufacturers use to sell sub performing? 
products. I mean, I've seen the buzzwords uh, fast, heavy, super, magnum. Um, but talk about some of the marketing tricks that are out there so we know what to, we can identify them when we're making our selections. Um, you know, I guess I'd have to speak from this personally, um, but uh, I think speed is the biggest one. Um, first and foremost, I think, you know, in America, right, we're, we're all about that big, hot, nasty speed. Uh, so I guess if you into that Ricky Bobby, um, to quote Eleanor, to quote yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt, right? She <laughs> yeah. said that big, big, hot, nasty speed. So <laughs> I'd say speed is the biggest one, uh, just because, uh, it, it's, it's such a, you know, in America, right. If, if bigger is better, faster must be better. So uh, when companies put these real high, big, heavy speeds on there, uh, I think shotgunners don't realize that the faster you throw a pellet, uh, two things happen. The faster you throw a pellet, the more around pellet, um, the the faster it's going to lose speed. And so what we talked about earlier was uh, more muzzle velocity doesn't mean hit harder. It traditionally usually means um, get there faster. So you, I think speed is number one, and, and from a simple fact is – Speed also affects your pattern, and so when when you slow down, um, like a big you know steel load, if you slow it down 200 feet per second muzzle velocity, uh, you're only going to lose maybe 30 or 40 per second, or sorry, 30 or 40 feet per second in impact, uh, which is negligible. Uh, but you're actually going to pick up a, a better pattern because you're not trying to you're not trying to send it zero to a, you know a thousand miles an hour. Um, it it it, it I guess you're not putting as much force into trying to do that. And there's like kind of that sweet spot in there is really around 1450 uh, feet per second. It's kind of that sweet spot where when you start to really get over that, um, you can kind of lose uh, some performance factors with trying to get that too fast. Um, I'd say speed um, coupled with, uh, you know, payload, um, you know, a, a good heavy payload is, is, is always good, but I would say just, um, the the need that you don't always have to have it uh, you know some of our stuff that we offer is down in the three quarter ounce range um that's just as heavy packed with pellets as a as an ounce and an eighth or an ounce and a quarter um i would say the shape of a pellet um i think people don't realize that the shapes of pellets uh, have physical um you know if they have physical deformations or the ability to be physically deformed um they have a substantial uh impact on your consistency of not necessarily uh, not only your shotgun performance but how many pellets you actually get in your shell so you know i don't think shotgunners are uh, or hunters are grabbing their pellets or their shot shells and cutting one every 50 open to make sure that they're consistent you know they're just believing that by golly if it's on the box it must be true so um i would definitely say that um you know to you know really understand what you're getting and don't just trust what's what's on the box um and in reality, I guess those would probably be my biggest ones is uh, pellet shape and uh, muzzle velocity would probably be the two biggest campaigns um, that are kind of really in odd shape pellets. I think uh, those ones are really the most that are jammed down our throat in terms of from a marketing perspective. And um, I, I think they can lead to a sense of a false sense of security. It, it, rounder is better. Um rounder and dense is better speed is not always better um if i'm sitting side by side in a layout line with a buddy that's shooting 1750 feet per second steel that doesn't mean necessarily that his shot and i'm shooting 1500 or 1550 um that steel loses its muzzle that's that's velocity at the muzzle not at the point of impact because, I mean, number one, who knows how far you're shooting to begin with. Uh, that's the only way that they can really accurately measure that muzzle velocity. But what I'm saying is 
at 1,750 feet per second. Mine's 200 feet per second slower. I guarantee you in a longer shot, mine's probably getting there at the same time, and it's bringing a lot of ass with it is what this whole conversation has boiled down to. Yeah, I mean, it's just the muzzle velocity is not impact velocity. I think uh, I think right, wanna, right. Think shotgunners versus rifle hunters have two, uh, you know, common the two most common fallacies. They think that muscle velocity is impact velocity, and that speed and 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 gravity are negligible. And I think they, right. um, you know, tend to neglect those because our shots are traditionally within you know zero to fifty yards versus uh, you know three, four, five hundred yards. Uh, but they can still have an effect. Um, humidity can have an effect on your pattern, uh, which people don't realize, uh, temperature can have an effect on your pattern. So, uh, but they, you know, we don't realize that, right. We just kind of mm-hmm. think that if it's on the box, it must be true. And that's what each shell does each and every single time. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I would challenge people to do simple things if they, if they really want to, you know, think I'm, you know, if they think I'm bullshitting here, uh, go take a handful of shells. If you have a chronograph and go put them in your freezer and let them sit in your freezer overnight and then pull them out and go shoot them compared to the ones that are at room temperature and watch your velocity. Uh, you know, see how much, if you have any unburnt powder compared to other, other stuff. So, you know, there's, there's little things like that. Uh, go, go pattern it in a high humidity summer day at, you know, 85, 90 degrees at, you know, big high humidity and then go do it in a cool day where there's lower humidity and see if your pattern changes. Cause, uh, I could tell you it will. Um, and I know it from personal experience because we kind of do it for a living. So I yeah. would say, um, if people think I'm, you know, not being serious, they should, you know, go try it for themselves. What do they got to lose? Mm-hmm. It's all good data, man. I, I think that we have covered most of what is confusing most guys out there. I, I can, I can tell for a fact that the number sixes that I brought with me this year um, were the I've shot both the, the pure tungsten and the the waterfowl the waterfowl blend I guess which had a little bit of steel in it um, head and shoulders above the normal steel shot that we had been shooting um, and as I said earlier it made me the the cost actually made me a better uh, a better shot because I wasn't just up there slinging cheap steel. I actually wanted to take my time because it's you know it there is a a there's a cost consideration that that goes into shooting the best that there is, and I definitely think that Apex is. So, um, what did we uh, what did we not cover that you wanted to get into? I think we about hit it all. I mean, can we, we get could, everything? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we could probably talk for days off off tangent topics, but I guess we'll just have to save them for next time. Well, I appreciate you uh, you jumping back on um, and uh, and helping us finish this podcast out. There's a there's a, a lot of good information that we talked about, and um, I'm going to put uh, your contact information, uh, websites, Instagram accounts, all that good stuff up on the uh, on the show notes. So that people can check you out. What's what's next, dude? Mississippi season opens soon, right, for turkeys? Uh, yeah, youth season uh, opened up yeah, uh, Friday, the uh, the 8th. And then uh, we got regular general season opens up March 15th, like clockwork every year, and we'll go till May 1st. And uh, Mississippi's on deck this week. And uh, and after, it'll be South Carolina and, and Georgia. And after then, we'll be looking at uh, Tennessee opener, and then we'll be just kind of starting to travel northward, and then we'll uh, see if we can't chase them all the way to Nebraska and up there through uh, the end of May and and call it a good 90 days worth of hunting. Well, do me a favor and don't lose my number during those 90 days, okay? Because as I said before, I still haven't killed one, so. Yeah, no, I definitely, yeah. I'll, uh, I, you know, during turkey season, it's, uh, I, 
with with the business and being how busy it is and and being and, you know trying to make sure that we meet all of our customer demands and and address any issues along the way is uh unfortunately I have to live my turkey season uh by the seat of my pants where you know i'm here today gone tomorrow type deal just because uh planning anything gets kind of difficult so uh i'm really just gonna see what uh what the year unfolds and see what happens and and see where i can be when i can be without um, making any, I guess, poor decisions and nothing suffers. So, uh, but with all, all things considered, I guess I'm looking forward to the Mississippi opener this weekend. So, uh, as long as the weather and the birds cooperate, I think it should be pretty good. But if it doesn't, then well, it'll be your traditional early season blues where good, the birds yeah. birds are hinned up bad, and and then the wind will be blowing, and I'm sure there'll be rain just like every other spring. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Uh, be glad to no, do it again here bet. soon. And uh, you bet. No, I'll be glad to do it again here soon. Okay, man. Thanks a bunch, Nick. We'll be talking to you soon. And if uh, I, we live our hunting season by the seat of our pants also. So I can, um, it, you know, if you say, hey, we got a spot, we'd love to get one on film getting uh, getting flopped, chances are we can make it. So keep us in mind, dude. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a bunch. Yep. Thanks again, man. Thank you, Nick, from Apex Ammo for providing a ton of clarity to the non-toxic shot conversation. The dude has probably forgotten more about ballistics than most people will ever know. I can tell you from firsthand experience though, these guys know how to build premium, effective shotgun shells that do one thing and one thing only, kill and kill quickly and efficiently. That's what we as ethical waterfowlers want, is a quick and efficient kill. So go to apexmunition.com and also follow them on Instagram at apex underscore ammunition. Finally, again, thank you to Nick and his partners for their service to our country and all those who serve. You are true American heroes, all of you. Uh, Thanks to Tangle Free for supporting the podcast, and thank you for listening. Make sure you hit the subscribe button, and we'll see you again on another episode of the No Limits Podcast. Bye-bye, y'all.